Plato, and I have to say that my presentation is a series of footnotes to Van Hooser, but sadly it is uh, too late to change what I prepared. And so, uh, lest I be accused of plagiarism, I did this uh, actually uh, way in advance, but here it is what it is. So I have to say that my uh, deep-seated interest in this topic really began many, many years ago uh, and reaches back to the days when I became a Seventh-day Adventist. And while many different voices shaped my early Christianity and my uh, Adventist worldview, I distinctly remember reading uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, Escape from, from Reason. And I'm trying to get the clicker work here, but I'm uh, quite not uh, sure that it works. So, um, guys, control booth, people up there. Can you help me? This doesn't work, the clicker, so I will have to ask you to help me with slides. Thank you. Perhaps if you can see me pointing, that being a sign. Thank you. So, um, so even though I, I took an exception later on at his narration of philosophy and how he understands things like existentialism and so on and so forth, I think what really stayed with me is his basic argument and that all our ideas, even the simplest practices, are always already infused with certain worldview commitments. I, I got this as a young person from reading Francis Schaeffer. And so you might not care for those wider frameworks, you might not be interested in those kind of issues, but it doesn't mean that you can somehow break them out. And so, and to wit, the, the very employment of language, when we use language, right, using descriptive categories, when we have forms of appeals, when we assume certain hierarchies of values, all of that already places us very deeply into worldview matters. And so with that as a backdrop, I really delighted at the opportunity many years later to teach a year-long freshman honors course um, called Western Heritage here at, at Andrews uh, University. And um, at that point, the whole class revolved around the basic ideas of worldviews where my colleague John Markwich and I, who is going to present a little bit later, um, today would slowly unpack the meaning of, the, of, this, of this term, right? Uh, through a kind of a interdisciplinary exploration of history, theology, philosophy, and arts. And so we would repeatedly challenge students to become self-aware about their respective worldviews and the way they were shaping their lives. In other words, in other words we hoped that they would critically and reflexively, self-awareness kind of thing, think about their underlying assumptions about ultimate reality, history, humanity, morality, and so on and so forth. You cannot possess, you cannot not possess a worldview, whether you want it or not. You always play by some worldview tune. That was our mantra. To, the, to that end, we used scripture, literature, primary texts in philosophy and theology, museum outings, theatrical performances, um, Hindu temple visits, and other sources and venues as springboard to foster the conversation and prepare uh, them for the capstone project, which was their, uh, their worldview paper, 10 to 12 page worldview paper that they did. Yeah, these, uh, just leave the slides as they are at the moment. They're automatically going on, okay. So I cannot tell you how much fun this really was, uh, but it was so much more than fun, really. We approached the class if this was like just one shot that we had to convince students about the beauty 
and the coherence and the depth of a Christian worldview. We felt a great deal of responsibility in doing so, knowing well about the kind of intellectual challenges those motivated students will find later on in their lives and in their respective disciplines. Actually, as I think back to that experience, I would say that we were motivated by a number of consideration. At the very least, we were eager for students to become self-aware about fundamental questions of ultimate reality and of human existence that comprise a person's worldview. I mean, that's what we tried and what we wanted them to, under, we wanted them to understand what are the basic questions that a worldview seeks to answer. Second, to become intelligent about their faith and the biblical worldview on which it rests or ought to rest. To have a better understanding of the plurality of worldviews that are in circulation in contemporary culture. We wanted them to be informed to understand what is going on in contemporary society. And to be able to defend their faith or find contact points with other people and other worldviews to reflect on how specific ethical values and actions then flow from these specific worldview commitments. And also to develop an appreciation for the beauty and rich, uh, richness and coherence, uh, uh, not the reach, but richness and coherence of the biblical worldview. And above all, our, I think our ultimate goal was for them to affirm and recognize the supremacy of Christ over all of reality in the memorable words of Abraham Kuyper, in the total expanse of human life, there's not a single square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, this is mine. And so in some, our motives were apologetic, they were missional, they were theological, pedagogical, and, and spiritual, and not a mean feat, I dare say, as far as aspirations, anyway, are concerned. And not quite different from what this conference seeks to achieve on a more focused and perhaps certainly more sophisticated level. Of course, there are other fundamental reasons why we might find the idea of worldview so appealing. For instance, I believe that our quest for worldview really connects to the aesthetic character of our sense-making capacities. Um, as humans, we are naturally attracted to predications, to descriptions of things as powerful and vivid and delicate, moving, graceful, and elegant, all of which are aesthetic categories par excellence. The same applies to unifying categories such as balanced and integrated, synthetic, coherent, holistic. Put in, a simpler term, put in simpler terms, thinking in large composite images or stories has something deeply attractive to it. I was reminded of that a while ago while reading a New York Review of Books article on Edward Frankel on love and math, the heart of hidden reality. Jim Holt, the reviewer, writes the following. He begins by noting that for those who have learned something of higher mathematics, Nothing could be more natural than to use the, the, use the word beautiful in connection with it. Mathematical beauty, like the beauty of, say, a late Beethoven quartet, arises from a combination of strangeness and inevitability. Simply defined abstractions disclose 
disclose hidden quirks and complexities, seemingly unrelated structures turn out to have mysterious correspondences. Uncanny patterns emerge, and they remain uncanny even after being underwritten by the rigor of logic. So postmodern suspicions of these meta-categories aside, I think we have a deep quest and deep longing for the, for the whole, W-H-O-L-E. And it has, this quest for the whole has a profound impact on many domains of human activities beyond the arts. Uh, the philosopher Iris Murdoch, for instance, sees this impulse, this impulse for the whole to think in these larger images as the basic drive beyond or behind metaphysics. Behind attempts to think about reality in some fundamental, universal, or composite terms. Like the philosopher Plato, who is using the words synopticus to denote or describe this ability to think in these large, unifying, composite images, so too Iris Murdoch affirms the centrality of integrated seeing or theoria as a way to bring meaning to human existence. She writes, the idea of a self-contained unity or limited whole is a fundamental instinctive concept. We see parts, we intuit whole things. The urge to prove that we, are, that we intuit unity, there really is, where we intuit unity, there really is unity, is a deep emotional motive to philosophy, to art, to thinking itself. In some, there is a deep human intuition for thinking in such a unified fashion. And I believe that the quest for worldly articulation at least to some degree tracks these deep cognitive quote-unquote longings that we have. Much more could be said on this point, but I wanted to begin with these kind of statements, these kind of placing myself in this discussion to show you my positive regard I have for the whole question of worldview analysis. They, that has shaped, that they have shaped my thinking and they have really been very important for me for pedagogical purposes. And so what I'm going to share in the remainder of my paper, some critical questions that I'm going to raise, should be understood and should be read in light of this. So here's now my first point that I have. My first problem that sometimes, at least sometimes, uh, worldview analysis mischaracterizes the positions of others, and we've seen Dr. Van Hooser talk about that. Worldview analysis entices us with their bird's eye perspective, a perspective that forgoes the granularity and nuance of ideas, thinkers, religions, or philosophies in favor of grand images. Metaphorically speaking, uh, flower beds, children's laughter, road potholes, filled garbage bins, the noise and hustling of busy urban streets, all that fades away as you view Chicago through the airplane window thousands of feet above the ground. It provides us with a powerful ordering heuristics, ordering tool where we don't need to bother with the niceties and um, nuances of, and subtleties of a particular philosophy, ideology, or life outlook. Matters such as intellectual development, nuances of thinking, fruitful contradictions, 
and constructive tensions evident in, let's say, a thinker's work, none of that really matters from that perspective. The power of categorization enables us to sidestep the burdensome task of attentive engagement. Now, as uh, Dr. Van Hooser has shown, um, reductionism, I believe, is not always bad. I think it is absolutely necessary, otherwise we would not be able to have entries in encyclopedias. I would not be able to teach, we would not be able to preach. We are using unifying categories all the time. We talk about civilizations, historical periods, personality types, philosophical schools. We talk about millennials, the Middle Ages, women voters, Adventist youth, Mexican cuisine, liberal theology, and so on. We always have to use these orienting sort of uh, descriptions. Nevertheless, reductionism potentially creates spaces of misunderstanding and even violence, and I don't need to name examples from our contemporary political discourse, at least in this country. Closer to the topic of, of under consideration, would be, for example, to look at the favorite nemesis or whipping boy of all matters Adventist, namely postmodernism. So people employing the postmodern worldview terminology often treat it uh, as an obvious synonym for distasteful relativism and anything goism. However, if you actually engage postmodern thinkers, you will soon realize that things are way more complicated and nuanced than that. Not only are these thinkers widely different, but their own writings indicate shifts of perspectives and potentials for various appropriations. It's quite, a, quite interesting, actually, that we uh, accuse postmodernism for promoting ethical relativism, when actually a huge swath of postmodern thinking and postmodern theology came in response to the Holocaust and trying to articulate that type of thinking that will not lead us anymore to such gravious, grievous acts of violation of human rights. But that's, that's for another concept. Another context. In that sense, there's no capital P postmodern, postmodernism, no single official doctrine of this worldview, just as there's no single form of Marxism, monism, New Ageism, or even, of course, and certainly Christianity. We can talk about general ideas, but at some point one wonders whether these generalizations become useful for the purposes of dialogue, evangelism, and missional endeavors. And here lies the problem with such reductive reflexes. Not only are they falsifying, but they also leave us with a sense that we are drinking water upstream from others, that somehow we always already know better than others what they are actually about because we know where they belong. The ability to look at some thinker, book, ideology, or idea and say he or she is such and such simply feels good. Once the worldview edifice is erected, we are set, set to go forth in a swash, buckling manner. We are ready to opine on matters we often know very little about, and then do so in a monological way. Of course, I'm exaggerating things quite a bit here, but I do legitimately wonder whether worldview analysis, insofar as it reflects such a mentality, does not amount at times to a manifestation of a will to power. I think that has partially to do also with the fact that worldview analysis frequently amounts to a positioning exercise. This vis-a-vis -vis consciousness is central to it. 
at least the way it's often practiced in evangelical and Adventist circles. At its extreme negative end, it fosters a scapegoating mindset employed for the mobilization against external enemies. There's nothing so powerful, as powerful as René Girard has shown us, than finding a common enemy to which we then channel our aggressions and then that creates communal unity. So sometimes I wonder whether our obsession sometimes with enemies, outside enemies, has this implicit community forming intention behind that. Insofar as this is the case, insofar as this is the case, worldview analysis really just leads to the fostering of enclave mentality and a high-strung protectionism. Now, given such potential pitfalls, how can we employ worldview analysis with moral and intellectual integrity? But let me offer just a couple of points in that regard. I think, first of all, we should use our worldview descriptions as temporary or makeshift models whose limitations we are continually ready to admit. A helpful way to think in that direction was brought home to me recently in Kwame Appiah's uh, delightful um, and yet complex book, As If. There, Appiah um, explores a variety of categories that we regularly employ as overarching explanations of human behavior, the nature of political systems, economic systems, and so on. He refers to such uh, categories as idealizations. And he, he names a twofold, there's a twofold nature to them. On the one hand, idealizations are often overly simplistic and myopic in that they usually single out a few determining factors for human behavior. As in Adam Smith's view of human beings as selfish, self-interested agents fundamentally interested in profit and material wealth. On the other, such seeming reductionisms, falsifying, falsifying as they are, they nevertheless pull a significant explanatory heft. They actually help us explain some things pertaining to behavioral economics, but by no means all. Appiah's conclusion is that life is a constant adjustment between the models we make and the realities we encounter. In idealizing, we proceed as if our representations were true while knowing they were not true. And so while Appiah's concern is quite a bit different than mine here, um, I believe that it can be appropriated with some modifications um, in, in the following sense. We recognize the importance of worldview analysis both for its aesthetic appeal as well as its pedagogical and missional function. Using Appiah's language, worldviews are types of idealizations that explain some aspects of people's beliefs, highlight some aspects of a given intellectual trend or school of thought, and, and shine light on some aspects of human behavior and living. But they are always, by definition, falsifying abstractions. They do not attend to the specificity of actual lived existence. On account of that, my worldview analysis ought to come with disclaimers along the following lines. If such and such means such and such, and I think that this is the case, then I can make such and such judgment, but most likely I am off the mark. So in some what is problematic is not the reductionist character of worldview analysis, but that which seeks to pass as finality and sometimes is manifested in a lack of charity. 
It's quite interesting to me when you read Daniel Dennett's, uh, uh, Daniel Dennett in one place, he ha uh, tells us how to engage our interlocutors. And he says, you know, you should always attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly and vividly that your target says, thanks, I wish I, th I thought of putting it that way, right? Wouldn't that be awesome if we approach other people and not this, oh no, I know who you are, I don't care what you're saying. Second, you should list any points of agreement, right? Third, you should mention anything you have learned from your target, and only then should you engage in critique. I mean, that would do us well, I believe. Do, would do me, man. Two, worldview analysis often operates on a restricted notion of what a worldview is. Now, there are many legitimate reasons why worldview analysis should deeply interest us. And not to mention all of those reasons again, and they're going to be mentioned numerous times during this conference. But at a bare minimum, we want to become intelligent about our faith. We want to understand others. We, and we want to provide some basic categories and principles that enable us to translate scriptural truths to a vastly different cultural context than the biblical world. But once we press uh, this a bit more, things become significantly murkier. That is especially the case once we inquire about the functionality of worldviews. In such a context, we are not primarily concerned with the articulation of basic beliefs, but are instead inquiring into the question of what actually directs human lives. In other words, we are here concerned about the life-orienting role of worldviews. After all, the ultimate reason why we ought to concern ourselves with worldview analysis is an account of their supposed life-orienting function. They do something to us as much as we do something to them. At the very least, then, the following becomes a matter of interest. First of all, I mean, the point is that a minor tweaking of a worldview might lead to humongous and huge, huge differences in practical experience. Let me illustrate this by, uh, I don't think I, I don't have this slide here, but a book by, we can go back, thank you. Uh, by a book by uh, Thiessen, uh, uh, Terence Thiessen called Providence and Prayer. And, and he, the book writes about the fact how people having just slightly different conceptions of divine providence, sometimes slightly different, sometimes vastly different conceptions of providence, which then really leads concretely, and he shows us through case studies, how these individual people then pray. So just a minor tweaking in the doctrine of providence, in, which is a minor aspect of the doctrine of God, which is one aspect of theology, which is one aspect of the whole worldview edifice that we then in the end call theistic. That minor tweaking in a minor part of one system will have drastically different outcomes than if you believed this about providence. So what do we actually then achieve when we achieve in people to become theists when it comes in, in respect to this life-orienting function of worldviews? Also, Worldviews direct us, but people have different configurations of them. So simply by emphasizing, perhaps, different aspects of a worldview, you will come to very different lifestyles. You know, why is it, for example, when Adventists when, uh, who share a common worldview have such radical and drastically different responses to a whole range of contemporary ethical issues? 
In one church, I have a student of mine, former student of mine, who goes and preaches on immigration and what the Bible says about hospitality and embracing people, refugees and all of that. And people start walking out, to the out of the church, Adventists. And you go to another Adventist church, perhaps the Hispanic church. I recently had a sermon there. And you had a beautiful sermon and people were saying amen. So, so what accounts for these drastically different uh, approaches? Is it, is it their worldviews? But worldviews are more general than doctrine. So how do worldviews account for that? This is the question I have. So these are all the complicated issues. And I won't go into the issue now of, of social uh, imaginaries. We could talk a lot about, about these issues. But another thing I wanted to say is that sometimes uh, if we define worldviews in terms of their life-orienting uh, force. In other words, if you define a worldview is something that fundamentally orients me in my everyday existence, then I'm wondering, can we actually ever achieve a hierarchical sort of relationship between basic commitments? If my huge resentment towards the operation of institutions, and that's an example I use sometimes in class, if that motivates my behavior when I am past, I don't know, for something or someone neglects me, then, then that is going to drive my life way, way more than perhaps my belief in the sovereignty of God. So how do we actually ascertain what has a greater life-orienting function in my life? Which leads me to my third point, and that is that worldview analysis falsifies what directs people's lives. And I've skipped a lot of things here, and perhaps one thing that I wanted to show is this quote by C.S. Lewis, and skipping stuff on Charles Taylor because uh, I've, I've uh, sh shipped this out to Dr. Van Hooser. I don't need to mention this now. But here's this great quote by, by C.S. Lewis who says that we must recognize that what has been called a taste in universes is not only pardonable but inevitable. Hardly any battery of new facts could have persuaded a Greek that the universe had an attribute so repugnant to him as infinity. And hardly any such battery could persuade a modern that it is hierarchical. So there are all of these kind of images that we have that direct our lives. And so it is perfectly okay to say, well, no, worldview is not simply about propositional and theoretical statements. Yes, fine, I get it. And for perhaps for you to say then, like Sire is saying, no, worldview is an orientation of the heart, but you cannot say that the worldview is an orientation of the heart. And then you proceed with the worldview analysis as if worldviews were simply propositional statements. You cannot say that worldviews are made of the orientation of the heart and then just start looking postmodernism, and blah, 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 and, and, and forget that what orients people's lives is not perhaps these mega beliefs that they have, but basically something deeply visceral as part of their condition. Much could be said about this. But I will take the liberty to, even in this setting, to, repair, to refer to a thinker who is uh, uh, really, uh, in many ways, uh, also a whipping boy, rightly and justifiably so, um, for all Christians, and that is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, in one of his essays uh, called Truth and Lie, uh, wrestles about a curious thing. He wrestles with this thing, is how is it that human beings have become or see themselves as truth-seeking animals? After all, even a superficial examination of everyday human existence will reveal that human most, humans mostly prefer lies over truth. Somewhat brutally put, exaggerations, manipulations, self-deceptions, flattery, and so on are the mark of the human condition. We are confabulating creatures 
in that we tell imaginary stories to ourselves about ourselves all the time. As Dostoevsky once noted, lying to ourselves is more deeply ingrained than lying to others. And recently I've just seen this uh, graph, I won't go over this uh, next one, uh, and next one is about all the different types of cognitive biases that we have. And just if you need some good exercise, if you, if, if, if you, don't, if you feel you have nothing to repent of, just take a list of cognitive biases and in, a middle, in three minutes you'll be, start crying over your life, right? So there's a lot of these things, and, and Nietzsche will later go on and develop this more, and he will talk about drives, about drives that adopt perspectives, they interpret the world, they evaluate, and once he's writing about this, you can see by drives he doesn't mean instincts, he means this kind of precognitive, automatic way in which we process reality. Now much could be said about this precognitive aspect of human existence, I don't have time to go into that except as to highlight that the automaticity of being manifested in a range of habits, sensibilities, desires, stereotypes, loyalties, virtues, addictions, all of these really have a significant pull in how we actually live our lives. But to make this concrete, uh, I just want to perhaps show something. Uh, let's, next slide, thank you. Is, for, yeah, go on, next slide. Thank you. Is to talk about something that I've shared recently in, in a conference here, and that is uh, uh, about, about acedia. Uh, and acedia is uh, sloth, right? Sloth, sometimes it's not translated because it's more than sloth, it has a kind of double meaning, but it's one of the uh, double, triple meaning, but it's one of the seven deadly sins. And there, it's difficult to describe what acedia is, but here is a list that I would like to provide you with. Uh, if it can have this, this slide, look at this. So the slot of Orsidia is aloofness, apathy, boredom, carelessness, despondence and detachment, disinterest, dispassion, disregard, drowsiness, dullness, um, incuriosity, indifference, indolence, laziness, lethargy, lifelessness, listlessness, and so on and so on and so forth. And my question is, what happens to pristine biblical worldviews once you place it into the lives of a person who is struggling with acedia? I don't care how pristinely, coherently, beautiful it is articulated, it will not have a life directing and life orienting function as it is supposed to be. So this is not to invite us in conclusion to a certain kind of anti-intellectualism. But instead it seeks to deepen the meaning of worldview formation by recognizing the extent of human fallenness and the deceptiveness of the human heart that comes with it. It recognizes that our intellectual needs need to be shaped and trained, that our intellect needs to be shaped and trained, and that the shaping and training is not simply a matter of better thinking, but actually becoming a better person. If worldview is an orientation of the heart, it requires a total conversion of the whole being, mind, soul, everything. And to conclude with two verses. One is Philippians 1.9 where we are being told that it is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more. And how does this love abound? It is connected with knowledge and all discernment. Or note, for example, in 2 Peter, and one more slide, where he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and so on, and so on, and so forth. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, 
they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I need to be that kind of a person to have the power needed to sustain what my biblical worldview asks of me and for it to have a proper life-orienting function. Amen. Amen. <laughs>